WRCR. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County. Today's program has been made possible by a generous contribution from the Town of Ramapo, Supervisor Christopher St. Lawrence, and the Ramapo Town Board. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a nonprofit educational institution and principal repository for original documents and artifacts relating to Rockland County. Our headquarters are a four-acre site featuring a history museum and the 1832 Jacob Blavelt House located at 20 Zucker Road in New City. We rely on member support from people just like you. If you are not already a member of the Historical Society and would like to learn more about membership, visit our website at rocklandhistory.org. Before we begin our program today, I'd like to remind our listeners that this is a call-in show, and we welcome your phone calls. The phone lines will be open throughout the broadcast, so please call us if you have a comment or a question. That number is 845-362-0013. That's 362-0013. Today, we will turn our attention to perhaps one of the most interesting topics in modern medical history, that of Typhoid Mary. I'm delighted to welcome Mary Beth Keene to the program today. Mary Beth is a Rockland County resident and author of Fever, an engaging new book about Typhoid Mary, which has been published by Scribner. Thanks for being here today, Mary Beth. Thanks for having me, Claire. And before we launch into our discussion about Typhoid Mary, could you give our listeners a bit of your background? Uh, I was born in the Bronx and raised in in Rockland County in Pearl River. My parents are from Ireland, the west of Ireland, and and they immigrated to the Bronx in the 1960s and moved up to Rockland in uh, the late 70s. As we talk about Typhoid Mary, it's probably important to properly identify her rather than calling her Typhoid Mary, right? I agree, (laughs) yes. Uh, Her name was Mary Mallon. She was a real person. I get that question a lot. And she was from County Tyrone in Ireland, and she, yeah, she came to, to New York when she was a teenager. What drew you to want to write about Mary Mallon? I mean, gosh, there were so many things that fascinated me about her right off the bat. I mean, her case was so controversial for the time, which is always interesting. It was so relevant to today in many ways. And there's so many ways to tell her story, and all of them are true. She was such a complicated character. I felt like I understood her, probably because she was in the in the servant class, and she was an immigrant, and she was roughly my age, a few years older than me. And so I was reading a lot about her, and the more I read, the more I realized I wasn't hearing her voice in anything I was reading. Everything about her was written by doctors and lawyers and people of a different class who probably couldn't understand her point of view. And so that, when I, I, I sort of got that sense it became important to give her a point of view I suppose. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Mary Mallon perhaps you could describe who she was briefly. Yeah so Mary Mallon like I said she she immigrated to New York as a teenager and in when she was in her late 30s she was working she was probably working as a cook in some capacity from the time she came to the U.S. but by the time her case became national news she was working for a wealthy family and they had a summer home in Oyster Bay, New York, and she was discovered to be giving them typhoid fever through her cooking, and she became the first known healthy carrier of typhoid fever in North America. Now, your book is considered historical fiction. That's right. And can you talk a little bit about writing in this genre? It's a genre I never really expected to be writing in, except that I found her particular case so fascinating. It was difficult. I mean, it, my job as a fiction writer, is different than a historian's job. And my purpose in in writing this book was to make 
this character as vivid and as real and as, as fully human as possible, she became a one-dimensional character back in 1907 when her case hit the headlines just with the name Typhoid Mary. There was only one thing people knew about her. And that seemed unfair to me. And so my job was to create this world, make her human, and sort of present two sides of an issue. And when you started researching for Fever, what kinds of research did you do? You know, I started with a book that was, I I felt, the most reliable sort of summary of her case, Judith Walzer-Levitt's book called Typhoid Mary, Captive to the Public's Health. And she looked at Mary's case through a social perspective, medical, legal, media perspective, and, and she sort of presented all the different ways you could look at what happened to Mary Mallon at the turn of the century. And then from there, I looked at her sources, and I I started tracking down what I felt was important to track down. But I really relied on the the working historians to do a lot of this work for me, in a sense. And I, I read secondary sources. And so the research was really trying to get to know what Mary's world looked like. I I read a lot about the politics of the time and whatnot, but it didn't help as much as reading about what the average person was doing day to day. I mean, even things like how they got to work, how they supported their family, how they managed to, you know, do everything they had to do in such small spaces. Every gesture Mary made, I had to be able to see and anticipate. And if I couldn't do that, then I couldn't write fiction. And so I had to see the world not from a 2013 perspective, but from a a 1910 perspective. So let's set the stage. What was it like living in New York City at the turn of the 20th century? I I can't overemphasize how filthy it was in New York City at this time. I think it was very difficult for women, in particular in in the servant class and in the lower classes in the tenements. One statistic that stuck out for me was the number of horses in New York at the turn of the century. I think it was roughly 200,000 horses and no organized sanitation system. You can imagine, so horses put out like 22 pounds of waste per day per horse, and it was just filthy. Now, on top of that, you had people who who brought habits from wherever they were from, and the the tenements were so insular that a lot of the, the public health education policies and things like that, they just didn't penetrate. People chuck their garbage out of third, fourth, f- fifth floor windows, their, you know, their chicken bones, their ash can contents, I mean, everything. And it was just getting mixed up on the streets, and no one was coming around to pick it up. Right, and, and city services just couldn't keep up with They this. just couldn't keep up. And I think in the, in the wealthier neighborhoods, things were kept relatively clean because those were the people whose you know, votes mattered most and whose influence mattered. But for the average person, and especially for the people, for example, on the Lower East Side, there was just no way to keep up with all of this, and, and everything was just so disorganized. The Department of Sanitation started in the early 1880s, but it had virtually no effect whatsoever until closer to 1900. The Department of Sanitation was really begun almost with a moral undertone. It was, and there was a real morality that was attached to dirt and filth. And people who were considered dirty were the people who caught diseases and were most likely people from other countries. A lot of people didn't speak English. And so to separate yourself from the place you might have come from, it became important to keep a very, very clean, sterile home. And that was also their way, because a lot of people didn't understand germ theory yet, that was also their way of keeping diseases at bay. And so that ended up being one of Mary Mallon's offenses, is that she brought what was really a tenement disease, typhoid, into wealthy homes. By sort of 1892, 
thanks to Louis Pasteur, science knew about bacteria and that bacteria caused illnesses and that bacteria could be spread amongst people. Is that right? right? That's right. And, and science knew about it, but the average person didn't know. And this was something, I mean, now we have so many ways to get information and it's coming at us from all sides. I have information in my head I don't even want, you know, but it comes to me um, and we glean it from the radio, TV, internet, our phones, everything. But back then they didn't. And not only that, but medical circles and, and stratifications were also sort of haphazard. People could set up shop basically in the back of a pharmacy, almost call themselves doctors. You know, they had some sort of license, but they didn't, there was no real organizing principle. And so one doctor says one thing, one says another. Some were really committed to the old school, old world beliefs, and and some were more modern. And so although germ theory existed, the average person just didn't either know about it or just didn't believe it. It seemed too far-fetched. So Mary Mallon was a cook, as you said, and she worked in wealthy homes of New Yorkers. And so what happened in 1906 that drew attention to her? So this family rented a summer home in Oyster Bay, and they had an outbreak of typhoid fever in their house and staff. Um, I think about seven people came down ill with it. Everybody recovered, but because they wanted to go on and rent, the owner of the house wanted to rent out the house again the following summer, and he was afraid that if he didn't figure out the source of typhoid fever, he'd never be able to rent the house again. So they hired some local people to try to figure it out, and they just weren't coming up with any satisfactory answer. So after a couple months went by and and there were no answers, this man, the owner of the house, went and found Dr. George Soper, who was a sanitary engineer working in New York at that time. And he came out and he started asking questions and figured out that a new cook arrived on the scene just about two to three weeks before the first outbreak of typhoid fever. And because he was, um, I mean, he was a very smart man, he was very educated, and he knew that there were, there was evidence out of Europe that a person could be healthy, but carry a disease within her body. And so he had a suspicion that Mary Mallon was the reason that typhoid broke out. He went back to her employer, her placement agency, and he, he got names of other families she worked for, and went through one by one systematically finding out how many typhoid fever outbreaks there had been where she'd worked. You know, Soper was sort of out to make a name for himself in the world of public health, wasn't he? He was, and he was he was well on his way even before he discovered Mary Mallon, but she really made his career. And he was a fascinating figure right off the bat. He was smart and he was right. She was passing typhoid fever through her cooking, but it was clear that he disliked her from from the word go. I mean, he just had no time for her. He had no respect for her as a human being, was my impression. And everything we know about her, we know from his memoirs and from Dr. Baker's memoirs. She was a female doctor involved in the case. And even through his writing, you know, normally you give, when you're writing a memoir, the person right you give yourself the most sympathy, you know, in a way. And I, you could just tell in reading it that she was not getting a fair shake and that he was sort of highlighting his own experience as the the more respected or the more important of of this relationship. So he was critical in, in keeping her, I think, for study and for basically what happened to her throughout her life. And what I find about interesting about this story, aside from the scientific aspects, is the fact that Mary Mallon was really tried in the court of public opinion, which some might think is a new concept, but it was alive and well at the turn of the 20th century, wasn't it? It really was. And once the story broke and they figured out they were selling papers because of this case, they really took it up. 
particularly a paper called The New York American, which was owned by William Randolph Hearst at the time. And some think that he actually paid for her representation because he wanted to keep it going. And it had sort of flatlined, and uh, then out of nowhere, this lawyer showed up on the scene, George O'Neill, and it's, it's a mystery how he you know, got involved in the case, how he was paid, and some modern historians think that that's probably how he became involved. You're listening to WRCR and Crossroads of Rockland History. My guest is Mary Beth Keene, author of Fever, published by Scribner, a novel about Mary Mallon, more commonly known as Typhoid Mary. The book is available wherever books are sold, and I'll take this opportunity to remind listeners that our phone lines are open. Have you read this book? Do you have questions or a comment? We'd love to hear from you. Our number is 362-0013, 362-0013. So Mary Mallon was no shrinking violet, was she? No, she wasn't. And that's what made me also so drawn to her right off the bat. She was feisty. She was combative. She had a filthy mouth. She didn't mind using it. There are many accounts of her cursing out people who tried to take her and going at them with knives and and forks and chasing them out of her kitchen and and that's what made her so appealing to me in a way she was so complicated i wouldn't have wanted to write about a victim you know for four years it just would have been depressing and boring and so she got in her own way a lot but as soon as i realized that this case was really not very much about typhoid and actually very much about mary mallon and who she was and her personality then i became sort of more riveted than I had been in in the beginning. And it was her personality. She was so offensive to people in the upper classes who were involved in her isolation that I think that's what the problem was, not typhoid fever. I find in your writing an outstanding ability to portray both sides to the story in in a very engaging way. And what I mean by that is the need for public safety together with the importance of one's personal rights to civil liberties. And this, once again, is a very up-to-the-moment topic. And were you conscious of this as you were writing the book? I mean, I try not to think of these big-picture things while I'm writing. I mean, like I said, I just tried to picture a human being and imagine what, what life was like for her, whether she was right or whether she was wrong. She still suffered a great loss. And the fact is that a lot of people didn't really consider that loss. They didn't consider her life worth much because of what it looked like from the outside, that she lived in a tenement when she wasn't working, that she was a single woman living with a man she wasn't married to between jobs. And that may not have added up too much to George Soper and and her wealthy employers, but it meant a lot to her. I don't think my job as a fiction writer is to take a side or have a moral stand. I don't like when people talk about, you know, what's the moral of the story. I think the story is the story. And so if you present both sides in sort of an even and fair way, a lot of times it's fine to have sympathy with both and decide that in, in this case... They were both right. You know, it was right to take Mary and and try to teach her that she should not be cooking. But on the other hand, she was right when she claimed it was not fair to be put in isolation. And so this was a case. It's just so frustrating. Everybody was right and everybody's wrong. Mary Mallon was sent to North Brother Island in isolation. Uh, can you talk about where this was and what it was like? So at first, so she was working and, and living and having a totally normal life. And all of a sudden, doctors... She'd had a few warnings from Dr. Soper, but on one particular day, a doctor named Josephine Baker showed up with NYPD officers, and they took her, literally kicking and screaming, from her place of employment so that they could test her and confirm that she was carrying typhoid fever. When they confirmed it at the Willard Parker Hospital in Manhattan, they sent her to 
North Brother Island, which is a small island in the East River. It's very close to Rikers Island. In fact, there have been cases in the past where prisoners from Rikers swam to North Brother and then gone back because they realized they wouldn't be able to make it all the way across. Um, And so that's how close it is. And it's just, it was a quarantine island for tuberculosis. There was a hospital there, and they built her a little cottage on the grounds that was just for her. And this was also one of the most interesting things, reading the papers. There were so many conflicting reports. There's so much that contradicts each other. In some, it says she was kept with other typhoid patients. And then in other places, it's clear there were no other typhoid patients. There was just Mary Mallon. Some say she was allowed to talk to people. Some say she wasn't. You know, And so I had to make decisions within this big, chaotic mess of research. And your story includes a great deal about about the relationships that she was involved in, both before she was incarcerated and afterward. How did you come to terms with these and make decisions about the, the creative license that you would take with regard to these relationships? Well, you know, Alfred Breihoff, her um, on-again, off-again partner, he was based on a real person who she did live with when she was between jobs, and he helped her somewhat when she was trying to get private labs to come back with testing when she just didn't believe what the New York City lab was coming back with. I had to take license there because we just don't know anything about it. And I and I gave her some friendships, you might be referring mm-hmm. to, like mm-hmm. um, Mrs. Boriello and other people in her building, because I thought, you know, if my job is to make her a fully fleshed out character, you know, what better way to do that than to give her relationships mm-hmm. that she can, we can see every side of her, we can see what kind of friend she is and what kind of person she is and how people respond to her. And so, you know, if I didn't give her that, then I would just be writing a, a, a biography. Right. Know? And the subject of women's rights is also at the forefront of this story, right? Yeah, I mean, that's also what made this such a fascinating time. She's right in the heart of the progressive era, and women's rights is, and, and um, prohibition and things like this are starting to really take root, and there's some momentum, but they're not quite there yet. And, and she really was a modern person. I think she was on, she was really ahead of the game in a lot of ways, and that's also, it, it's just such a rich time in New York's history. Absolutely. Well, we have a caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. I was curious to know, do you go into the her history in Ireland and where she came from there? Um, I don't actually go into that because there's nothing known about that. I mean, on the one hand, that didn't stop me in the New York aspect of things, but I really tried to focus it on, on a particular set of years in New York. If I... I, I, there was one point early in a draft that I had her coming over and her immigration process, but it sort of bogged down the, the narrative, which was really about what happened to her and the moral conundrum of her case. So I, I didn't go into it. All we really know is that she came from Tyrone and that she came as a teen. Ah, okay. Well, thank you very much. Sure. That's very interesting. Thanks for your call. Um, so there's a, there's a little bit of a local connection with Mary Mallon, right? There is. Dr. Letterly, who founded Letterly Labs, which a lot of Rocklanders and, and people beyond Rockland are familiar with, he became the health commissioner of New York City in 1910. He had been health commissioner previously in the early earlier part of the decade, and then he, he left that, founded Letterly Labs, and then gave that up. He had to sort of relinquish control of that to go back and become health commissioner of New York City. And he actually had, he was vocal in his support for Mary Mallon, even before he took office. He thought you know, isolation was really something that should have been a very, very last resort. And he felt like they hadn't really exhausted all their options with her. And he felt, he said publicly about that he felt guilty about what they'd done to her and that they'd given her no other training, no other options. Um, And he really did try to get her, or he did get her a job in a laundry 
um, after she was released. But one of the first things he did when he took office was let her go. And, and he let her go with the understanding that she was not to cook anymore. Right. But ultimately, she made the decision to go against his his orders and return to cooking. Right. How do you reconcile this decision on her part? You know, there are so many ways. Who knows whether she had that plan all along? In Dr. Soper's memoirs, he writes that she went straight off the map the moment you know she got off the island, and that's not true. She did check in like she'd been asked for a period of years, and several things happened. Her partner died. Alfred Breihoff really did die during this time, and. She just had no training for anything else, and she made quite a lot of money as a cook. And, and I think she really didn't believe this about herself. A lot of my research, especially with the medical stuff, was spent trying to decide for myself whether she really could have believed that she was not spreading typhoid fever. And I, I really think it is possible, considering how many people she would have likely witnessed dying you know, her whole life mm-hmm. of all of these diseases in the tenements. And so I, think it's, I also think it's possible to know something and just have a willed ignorance about it. And so I I, I can't account for it. I mean, I do. I had to make some decisions to write a fiction. But I think it was one, it was a complicated decision that she did out of desperation in part, about out of, you know, stubbornness in part. And yeah, I mean, it's what makes her who she is. Mm -hmm. Did you always want to be a writer? Always. I've never (laughs) wanted to be anything else. (laughs) But And this isn't your first book, right? No, my first book was uh, called The Walking People. It's also... It's a, it takes place half in, uh, in the west of Ireland and half in New York City in the 1960s, 70s. covers 50 years. It's about two sisters who immigrate together in the 60s. and covers them through 2007. Okay, great. And we have another caller. So, hello, you're on the air. Thanks for calling. Hi. I, I just wanted to make a comment, not a question. I did read the book. I enjoyed it so much. I told everyone I know to read it. Good. <laughs> but what Miss Keene did was she made her more than just a carrier. She was a real person trying to make a living and live her life, and she just wasn't one facet of her life. And it was it was a wonderful, wonderful book. I agree. Okay. I agree wholeheartedly. So thank you so much for calling in. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye. So, Mary Beth, you went to Pearl River High School, right? I didn't, actually. I went oh. to Immaculate Heart Academy in... Uh, Washington Township, New Jersey. Oh, okay, right. Um, were you writing even then? I was right. I was. I've been writing since. I remember writing an essay about a potato when I was in third grade. I've been writing. My mom says I've been writing and making up stories since I was little. But I was. I wrote for the literary magazine in high school, and this is just. I mean, I would not dare reread any of those stories. <laughs> I think you know, twenty-five years is not long enough. But yeah, I've. This is the only thing I've ever wanted to be and then when you get to your mid-30s and you realize you're not qualified to be anything else you start (laughs) getting real focused as i was reading fever i found myself at times really feeling for mary mallon and other times being angry and frustrated at, at what she chose to do and this of course is a tribute to your skill as a writer do you have any thoughts and feelings about her and and does that change i think she did something wrong but I, I really sympathized with her and the way that she handled, you know, this news about yourself. I mean, I tried to imagine how it would feel. And I, I'm also sort of amazed. I've, I've gone on tour now in, in the U.S. and in the U.K. And a lot of people are angry about why she didn't listen to the doctors. And I find that to be a particularly interesting frustration because when I look around myself in 2013, I'm surrounded by people who don't listen to doctors. I mean, we have everything from controversies about vaccinations, immunizations, 
I have people in my own life who continue to believe that the flu shot will give them the flu. You know, we, their doctors come out with things all the time that we just decline. We just don't believe it. You know, if your mother says, leaving the house with wet hair will give you pneumonia, no doctor will tell me that's not true and I'll believe them. And so she did that, I think, on a greater scale and to more harm. And, and what she did was reckless. But I think we are reckless in our lives more often than we care to admit. That's true. What's next for you? Are you writing something now? I am. I'm always tinkering with something. I mean, I'm into a third novel. It's in the early stages. And, and to be honest, I, I sometimes it feels like I'm evading the question. I'm not. It's contemporary, but I honestly often don't know what a thing is until I have at least a first draft complete, and I, I, I'm not quite there yet. Great. Well, we'll look forward to whatever you you publish next. Well, that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank Mary Beth Keene, whose book Fever published by Scribner, is out and available at bookstores everywhere. Mary Beth's website is marybethkeen.com. That's M-A-R-Y-B-E-T-H-K-E-A-N-E.com. So you can certainly follow her and what's happening at that site. It was a pleasure to speak to you today, Mary Beth. It was great to be here. Thank you. I hope you'll tune in to the next Crossroads of Rockland History on Monday, September 16th. My guest will be Scott Elder, who will speak to us about his ancestor, Private Joseph Elder, who was a Revolutionary War soldier, and the Elder family's efforts to research the life and accomplishments of their patriot ancestor. That's Monday, September 16th at 10.10 a.m. The Historical Society is a member-supported nonprofit organization that thrives thanks to generous members and friends. And please consider becoming a member of the Historical Society of Rockland County. Visit our website at rocklandhistory.org to find out about all of our events, programs, and exhibitions. That's rocklandhistory.org. Or you can call us at 634-9629. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm Claire Sheridan. Thanks for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR and WRCR.com.